Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome back to New Books and Psychoanalysis, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Our guest for the episode is Dr. Gail Ashter. Uh, Dr. Ashter is a critical theorist, psychoanalyst, and writer. She teaches at Columbia University and is in private practice in New York City. She last joined the podcast to talk about her book, Homo Psyche, on Queer Theory and Erotophobia, published by Fordham University Press in 2021. She trained at the Institute for Psychoanalytic Training and Research, IPTAR, in New York City, and is an editor at Studies in Gender and Sexuality. The book we're discussing today is her new book, Exigent Psychoanalysis, The Interventions of John LaPlanche. Welcome back to the program. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you, Dr. Rosen. Thanks for having me. Sure. I was, like I said, uh, really excited that we could schedule this. Mm-hmm. Um as, as always with this interview, uh, tell us your, your interest in LaPlanche and also what motivated you to write this book. Uh, yeah, um, I, you know, my interest in LaPlanche started uh, a very long time ago, but I found him too dense and uh, too difficult to really understand. Um, so I had to really come back to him uh, only a lot later. Um, and I, I think that you know, one of the things that was so exciting to me originally about Laplanche that I could sense, but I really couldn't articulate until I went back and um, started reading everything of his was that he seems to offer a real alternative to the usual uh, approaches, um, the usual models in psychoanalysis. And I think I have been, uh, especially, you know, a few years ago when I started um, reading him so hungry for some alternatives. I was, you know, having been sort of growing up, uh, as it were, in, uh, in you know, um, growing up on, I would say, like, um, you know, American, Anglo-American psychoanalysis and the very entrenched debates between classical and relational, um, sort of that is what has shaped my psychoanalytic consciousness um, very much so. And Laplanche just seemed almost right away like, an alternative that that was neither one nor the other, but something totally different. And that felt so 
so refreshing, first of all, um, and so exciting because uh, it felt like such a stale debate um, and one that um, I couldn't see a way to participate in um, uh, in any way that was satisfying. And I, I wanted something really new. And, and Laplanche seems to be doing something I didn't think a lot of other people were doing. Um, I would say that was definitely how I think of the initial motivation um, and something I tried to get up even in the way the book is structured, you know, to me, it, it I, there's certainly not how everyone would read Laplanche. Um, but to me, it's one of the major things that's valuable for us as Anglo American readers is the intervention he offers um, to these debates um, that have so much, so much a part of our, our DNA, I think here in New York and, and in the States. Yeah. Well, when you talk about the density, um, I last semester at some point I was teaching, um, uh, you know, introduction to drive theory. Um, and, uh, it's a, it's a pretty much like they call it, I think there's like Freud one and Freud two, mm-hmm. and it, it's introduction to drive theory. And on the syllabus, I was like, ah, oh, do I include Laplanche drive and instinct? Mm. One of my absolute favorite paper, do I include it? Oh, is it too dense? And I, you know, agonized over it. And I'm like, okay, well, I'll put it late. I'll put it mm-hmm. late in the semester. Uh-huh. Um, and the word you just used, refreshing, it was the paper that lit the students up well, yeah. the most. It was they, uh, and in fact, one of them said, this is the paper I've been waiting for. So well. it wasn't that that really, really spoke to them. So it is uh, refreshing. So talking about the structure of the book, let's just start at the top. Um, and I'm sort of going to uh, combine uh, different things you say to 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 get into it. Um, what, what are the needs of the present moment and why is Laplanche suited to meet them? Um, let's, let's start there or actually, and then what is Laplanche's third way? Yeah. I mean, I think that, you know, I trained at, you know, as, as you mentioned, IPTAR's pretty classical Freudian Institute um, as far as institutes go. And and yet we, you know, we read a lot about enactment and we, we read a lot of things that, you know, 20 years ago were seen as, you know, strictly relational terms and techniques and so on and so forth. And I was struck by the fact that, you know, and, and if you read uh, deeply in relational work or you go to conferences, relational psychoanalysts, um, you know, they'll, they'll say, well, you know, maybe drive wasn't so bad. <laughs> or like, you know, maybe, <laughs> maybe Freud was kind of not terrible. You know, it's just, you, you feel this softening you know, on both sides. And suddenly there is a little, there's, there's a more integration. There genuinely is, seems to be um, more of, of an appreciation that each side really does have something to offer and maybe we shouldn't throw everything out. So I, I think that, um, there's when I think about the present moment, I think that what we need now in in theory, and then I think the next question would be really about technique. How do how does this get play out in the consulting room? But I think at the level of theory, you know, I think we need we need something that appreciates the centrality of sexuality um, and drive, even if how we think of drive needs to be reformulated from Freud's original version. But we need some concept like it. Um, and we also need to appreciate the reality, the concrete reality of attachment. Um, so there needs to be um, some way that we can bring those two together and not, not that's not identical to the existing, you know, 
um, it doesn't sit easily right now in in for Freudians or for relationalists. There are a few relationalists who are who are saying, you know, we really need to bring back drive. We need to bring back sexual. Where has sexuality gone? We've totally lost it in attachment theory. It's 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 completely obscured. And you have and you have Freudians who are who are saying they're equivalent, but for the most part, there's no framework that really um, can account for for both of these points. And I think Laplanche, although he tr- truly did not, he didn't lay it out this way. He didn't say um, this is a way to satisfy these different needs. I think that's what he's. I think that's what he's offering. Um, you know, I think there's so much, um, there's so much an appreciation in Laplanche of the actual other person um, and the actual other. Uh, and this, this is, I think, what the relationalists have been saying for a very long time. Um, but he says it in a way that doesn't eliminate the drive and that doesn't eliminate sexuality, which seems very original uh, to me. It's something other people have not, we haven't managed to do, you know, otherwise. Yeah, so, um, boy, boy, there's so much there. Let me tie two things together, mm-hmm. what you said about, um, well, how we theorize and, in the, and, and also what we're doing clinically. Because um, at the beginning of the book, uh, I think you're quoting Arnold Cooper mm-hmm. saying, listen, it's, it's not enough for us to dismiss um, other people. Cruz, most notably, is a Freud basher. That's just not... That that's not enough to do that, and it's actually interesting. We had uh, Cruz on the program; it's very interesting. Mm-hmm. But um, th- this is a quote that ties to to what you're saying. Um, if we are making claims as healers, charging for our services, and claiming that we can enable people to alter their lives in a more positive direction, then we must sooner or later demonstrate that our ideas are in accord with findings from neighboring disciplines. Um, and then, um, uh, from later in the book, Laplanche endeavors to show how different views of psychic structure manifest clinically in fierce debates about the goals of treatment. Mm. Um, and I thought about that, (laughs) the goals of treatment. Mm. And if we're, if we're charging for our services, because you have at one point, Freud actually says, listen, if you if you want to make money doing this, you actually have to help people. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, of course, much later on, he says, give up trying to cure, just learn and make money, mm-hmm. um, which is a, a quote that horrifies new students. <laughs> um, but the, um, so for me, I, I, I really um, I, 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 I try to, to work deeply pragmatically. I am here charging people for this. Mm-hmm. Um, and I do find Laplanche helpful. But the idea of the otherness um, which is, is, uh, you, you say at the beginning, um, you ask the question, have we lost sight of the true revolution that we revolve around others? Um, and then, and I, I was curious about this, you write, it's hardly coincidental that traditional metapsychology falters precisely at the place where a true recognition of others is required. How does it falter? What does that mean? I mean, I think, you know, Laplanche, I think it's, this is sort of um, at the core of, of really his boldness. You know, Laplanche goes back to this moment, which is in some sense already such a, 
an important moment in the development of psychoanalysis um, in the U.S. He goes back to the seduction, the abandonment of the seduction theory. And, um, you know, for those who who may not be as familiar, it's just worth repeating that, you know, for Laplanche, um, when Freud in his famous letter to Fleece says, I've abandoned my neurotic, I've I've gotten it wrong, you know, um, his illness, hysteria is not caused by actual trauma it's it's caused by fantasy um and decides to leave sort of seduction behind and and go on to fantasy instead um for laplanche this is the moment when freud goes astray but what's very interesting about laplanche choosing this moment and well he doesn't really acknowledge it i think is that this is the same moment that american psychoanalysts then not just psychoanalysts but trauma researchers also chose as the sort of the moment when Freud abandons um, trauma and the most important developments of metapsychology. And but they, but these trauma theorists and the relationalists tell a very different story. They use this exact same moment, but they each tell very different stories about what it means. And so they both agree that Freud abandons seduction, and they both agree that he, you know, that something really goes astray. But whereas I think conventional and mainstream uh, psychoanalysis assumes that what Freud does wrong is he goes into the world of fantasy and leaves real people behind um, and real trauma, Laplanche says, well, not so fast. It's really not about trauma versus fantasy. That's a little bit simplistic. That, that has led us nowhere. We, we, we followed this thread and, and where have we landed? Um, in fact, what Freud really abandons is the the fact that people are impacted by by actual other people. It's mediated by fantasy, but there are other people there. It's not just fantasy. Um, he's trying to have both, Laplanche, I think at all times. He's trying to have fantasy plus uh, real trauma and real otherness. And I think this is something that is really missing um, from from the original sort of very famous 1980s sort of critique of, of Freud and has been, you could say, absent um, in a lot of this trauma theory since. It's, you know, um, so I think, I think for, for Laplanche, where it falters metapsychology is it can't, it, the way that we have it now, we can't really imagine um, a role for for actual other people, or that, or that when we do, it can only be by eliminating all the fantasy, so that um, things are now suddenly very, very concrete, very literal, um, uh, very far from from a complex uh, psychology. I think that's what um, what I think of when I when I say that. If that makes yeah. sense, that does it. It does make sense, and and. So in in the debates, maybe the eighties or or as, as as you entered, and and you mentioned it in different places throughout the book. But how does our our current discourse? How do we end up leaving the underlying theory intact? How do we sort of just do window dressing and not and not touch that that Laplanche does? What are we doing in our discourse or yeah. not doing? Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, Arnold Cooper, I think, wrote really the the great um, essay on this that I that I quote from. At the beginning, you know, he says we just we won't. He says we cannot bring ourselves 
to use, this is, I think, essentially almost verbatim how he says it's something to the effect of we cannot bring ourselves to use a language other than the one Freud taught us. Um, we, we just we keep we insist on the same words. Why do we have to keep mm. using the word the same words? Why not say if the Oedipus complex no longer fits or if we can't find a way to to make it. Um, coherent within a current why not just throw it out just say it doesn't work it's like a term like you know doctors medical doctors don't use the same words for certain diseases if they've discovered a new finding they say well that's what we, what we used to call it but obviously we can't call it that anymore our, our underlying science is totally do we underlying biology is totally different how can we call it the same thing and cooper is saying well why why are we insisting on on maintaining all of the same language no matter what and it's something i found I found very frustrating in my training um, as a candidate. It it felt like there were moments when I thought I, I literally could be in the 1920s. I could be in the 1950s. I don't even know what year I'm in because all of the terms for everything we're doing is the same as it's always been. It's just we're supposed to somehow know or believe that when we use them in 2022 or 2023, we mean something different. Um, and it's like, well, that's a lot of legwork mentally. <laughs> that's a lot <laughs> to ask people to do. And I, and I think Cooper is saying, and he said this in the eighties. Um, so, you know, but I agree with him. Um, Cooper is saying it doesn't, it doesn't work. We're not pulling it off. If you use the same words, then believe it or not, you are also using the same meanings because there's no way to totally get rid of the parts of these theories um, that don't fit anymore or that are wrong. Um, and I think, you know, Cooper says that um, for Cooper, we're too attached to Freud and we have this idealization of him. And this is why, according to him, we can't, we can't change the language. Um, I think other people would say it's just what, okay, well, that's nice, but what new language should we, should we be using? But I, I think Laplanche is, I mean, he he titles one of his books quite quite literally, um, you know, new foundations for psychoanalysis. I think he he means like let's let's try to develop some new language, some new foundations. Let's really have the the courage to retire things that don't make sense anymore, um, that don't work anymore, um, whatever we can agree those are, um, you know. And I I think that would. I think that would go a long way um, towards uh, invigorating our discourse a little. Um, but I, but I find that it's obviously very hard to do. <laughs> but, very hard to do. Yeah. But you have a wonderful sentence that I, it's one of the sentences that I read and went, "Oh yeah, that's true." Um, the grammar of our discourse is filled with constructions we do not believe anymore. Hmm. I just love that. But I'm like, okay, well, hmm. yeah, well, now what? But you also right. talk about the fact that there's this incredible trepidation to go, uh, what am I allowed to question? And if I question the wrong thing, you know, is this Jenga? Am I going to topple the whole thing? And then right. what? This incredible yeah. anxiety around it. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yes. That, that, that it's, happens. It's such a remarkable. Lot. Yeah. I, I, I think that's right. It's such a, it's such a remarkable thing. You know, I, I experienced this obviously very acutely as a candidate in training when, you know, you're, every candidate is anxious, but also you really aren't sure what you're allowed to question about Freud and what you're not allowed to question. But what struck me was, you know, this past year I was teaching at IPTAR um, 
the Freud class, Freud one, and like you were describing, um, and, you know, we were doing the, the early Freud and I, I was struck by how difficult it was to encourage my students, these candidates to, to question anything. Like they were so anxious. And I was like, where is your disagreement? It's okay to disbelieve. It's okay to disagree. And they were just like silent. And I thought, oh my God, like what, how is this getting conveyed? And, you know, in some sense, it's no mystery. I mean, the history of psychoanalysis is filled with, as everyone sort of knows, these stories of, um, you know, exiled psychoanalysts mm-hmm. and people who got punished for disagreeing. And in fact, the only people you could say who managed to sort of change things from within are those that said that they weren't changing things in a big way. They just, they said one thing and they did another, you know, you, you think about Kohut was so good at this. They, I mean, he got in trouble anyway, but he was very good at saying, no, no, I'm the ultimate Freudian. I'm the ultimate, just don't worry. I'm, you know, I'm like, I'm, I'm really not, I'm really not going to do that much differently. It's a reassured, you know, and Laplanche also, I think, you know, um, some people have, have said to me often that they find him quite anxious and I don't particularly feel that much anxiety oh. with him. Um, yeah. Hmm. But I've heard people say that he's anxious in like what they mean is that he is always seeking to reassure the reader that, um, you know, that, like it's okay to sort of disagree or that we can, we're allowed to, to um, he's doing a faithful reading of Freud and that we can, we can throw out the things that, that don't work, but still keep the things that do and that this might betray some anxiety. I, I don't, yeah, I, I, I personally don't feel that as much, but, um, but there is a certain way in which um, it, it feels like, I don't know if we're collectively traumatized by this history of, of the development of our discipline or if it's um, what I think we are. Yeah. Is that what I you think we are? Because yeah. it's in the zeitgeist, not only for practitioners, certainly in New York, but patients, yeah. it's just in the air. Patients will say out of, you know, or, you know, uh, I know you never want me to call you in between sessions. Right. <laughs> I know, I know, I'm not supposed to look at you. Right. I know, I, they know all the prohibitions, mm. none of which I've said. Right, right. Hmm. None of which are true. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, but they know the pro. The it's they just they just know it. Right. Um, and so I do think we're. Tra- I think I think we do have. We are traumatized. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. It feels very hard to really, and I think you know Freud. Um, you know, there's been in the history of, of psychoanalysis and even in the recent history, um, the, the pattern of, of developing our field has been one in which, you know, we say, well, if you don't believe in an unconscious, then you're not a psychoanalyst. And then fill in the blank. If you don't believe in X, you're not, you know, if you don't believe in Y, you're not in the psychoanalyst. So there's this constant use of, of these sort of secret passwords that indicate that you're a true psychoanalyst or not. Um, and, you know, maybe it's anxiety about we ourselves don't know what a psychoanalyst is and isn't. And um, certainly Freud was very anxious about what distinguished, you know, psychoanalysis from everything else um, mm-hmm. that he was doing and that was going on at the time. Um, but it's a way in which we, um, I think Cooper, you know, mentions this frustration and really names it. And I think what's more staggering to me is that it's still utterly intact, like that it, it does not seem to have abated. I mean, I'm talking about teaching a class in the fall, you know, like 
students that have been in grad school that where it's a very different culture um, uh, in debating. And you can say this philosopher is an idiot. That one doesn't know what he's talking about. This one's a misogynist. And yet when it comes to psychoanalysis, it's like, well, you know, I don't, I don't know. Maybe I, maybe I, maybe I'm wrong. It's, you know, it must be, it must be um, untouchable. We can't, we can't throw out these basic tenets. I, I don't know. I mean, have you encountered that in, in your oh my God. Te- Yeah, it was, yeah. In, in other teaching, yeah, but, teaching. And I, the best way I ever read it was we argue over um, furniture and frequency. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> the furniture, I love that one. Yeah, um, yeah. But yeah, but what's so interesting in this is that the entire focus on whether or not we are analysts um, or being analytical or, mm. or I think you write in the book that, you know, when painters study classical painting, right. they don't go try to replicate it. They're like, oh, that's exactly. interesting, but exactly. they use it to do something in 2022. Yeah. Um, but in the focus on am I being analytic? Am I being, am I in the guild? Yeah. Do I pass? If someone watched yeah. this, if Freud was here, if Andre Green, whoever yeah. Here, yeah. is here. Um, and I actually said this in my classes is, is, um, Students will present their final case, and look, they, they they have to. They present the case. They have some idea of what's going on, and they talk about it. And it's really wonderful. And if you want to stump them, you say, "Great, how's the patient doing?" Huh? Interesting. There's no fo- oh oh oh. Uh, you know, huh. so we lose sight of the, and that's why I loved that. If we're making claims as healers, yeah. you know, what are we doing? Huh. What are we? And and you know, because I I think a lot of people, I include myself, when I started with my analyst. I didn't know I was starting with an analyst. I had a referral for a therapist. Right. I didn't know. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, it's very interesting. And I think, I think, and I think it is hard. I mean, obviously, as as those of us who who, who practice also know, um, you know, I think intellectually it can be easier to sort of debate these things or to feel um, more irreverent. But certainly, you you know, when you're practicing, there is. I think often I I certainly feel this um, in my practice where you do want to make sure that you're being analytic, whatever analytic means to you, or you, you, there is some anxiety, I think professional, you know, anxiety about like, am I, am I responding analytically as opposed to just, you know, personally or something like Mm -hmm. it's, 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 it's such a sort of bizarre thing we're doing here as analysts really. Um, And so I can under you know I, I understand why we need to grasp onto some some sense of of certainty, but I think that uh, it has just become also just such a defense, really, as a field. Correct. Yeah. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Yeah, and practicing, I, I sometimes, you know, depending on the, the patient, I'm like, I'm lashing myself to the mast. Right. Because to, right. this is, these are the sirens. And if I don't function analytically, this is going to be bad for everybody. Yeah. But I'm also yeah. reminded, can I do this without quoting Freud? No, I can't. Right. Or Freud says, don't, don't, don't confuse the scaffolding for the building. Yeah, yeah. Um, but we need the scaffolding. 
Yeah. All right. Well, then let's let's jump into otherness and enlarged sexuality, yeah. since this is so so key to the book. And I'm going to I, I put together a lot of different things to to get into it. Um, uh, and part of it actually from your uh, interview last time. So enlarged sexuality um, to insist the psyche is sexual at its fundamental core. The way it's constructed is sexual sexuality as it pertains to consciousness, sexuality as intrusive, intersubjective, exogenous. Language doesn't give us sexuality. It's language spoken by another person who has sexuality. The child Mm -hmm. works on material that is already sexual. So those just a lot of different ways that you talk about Mm -hmm. it in the book. Um, I think we talked about, you know, um, well, let me let me form a question out of this. Um, how how does enlarged sexuality uh, demand, uh, quoting you a little bit, uh, a totalizing reversal in how we understand the basic navigation of mental life? I mean, I think um, one of the ways I might put it, trying to be um, straightforward, is that I think what Laplace is talking about is that we have. A real tendency and this is built into language so it's not it's not something that you know any one of us does versus other people this is like how perception is organized vis-a-vis language and symbolization but that we have a tendency to really assume that desire originates with us and that we that we are agents of our own needs and desires and and it, and it originates with us and we go out in the world and we act on it. And Laplace is saying, I know that feels like really obvious to everyone, but actually it's totally the opposite. Uh, first, the baby is innocent. The baby does not have sexual desire in the, in the Freudian sense. The, 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 the baby does not, is not born that way. The baby is totally helpless um, the parent, the adult, whoever it is that is taking care of the baby is the one who has a sexuality. Um, and this, this sexuality becomes a problem for the baby because it's, it's a lot to have to work on and figure out what to do with. There's a lot of stuff coming at, uh, coming at the baby that the baby is not prepared to handle, um, and this, this encounter between the baby who is actually innocent um, sexually and the adult who is not um, ends up forming for the baby a kind of sexual unconscious, ends up forming a kind of sexuality, after which point the baby will become a, a child, will become an adult who has desires and has needs that have are never purely its own um, and they're never purely its own because they, they originated with the other person. They are the effect of the baby's encounter with, with the adult. Um, And so um, I think one of the ways we, you know, Laplanche really wants us to think about enlarged sexuality um, uh, is, is, is really um, something that we feel most, um, we feel very certain is our deepest desire. Feel very certainly is, is certain is the most private thing about us, but actually, it's it's really not. It's the total opposite. It's the thing that um, comes at us from the other person um, first. 
Um, so I, I, yeah, I hope that clarifies. I think that's one way to think about it. Yeah. Yeah, no, it does. And, and coming from the other person, uh, in, in the way that life can, can work out sometimes I was reading, uh, the columnist, uh, Lydia Polgreen in the New York times this past Sunday. Uh, and she's talking about, um, uh, being queer in Alabama, uh, and, but she said, I, I, I was reading, rereading your book and reading this. And she says, um, I get it. When people who are alien tell you that deep down, they are just like you, it saves you from having to confront how you might actually be like them, how you might envy their freedom, the strength of their communities. As any decent psychoanalyst will tell you, the flip side of fear is desire. And her whole article is about otherness. Hmm. Um, so it's, it's in the zeitgeist and, and the, what you say in the book, which I love is that the baby gets more than they bargain for. They come, they come for affect regulation, which we'll get into. But when I read, uh, LaPlanche in large sexuality, seduction, translation of this material, which the baby starts working on, what are the differences between that and Ferenczi's confusion of tongues. It's what it reminded me of, but uh, I think they're different, but I couldn't figure out how. Yeah. Um, that's a good, you know, Laplanche has a lot of admiration for Ferenczi. He says that, you know, Ferenczi uh, is the first to really use that, for, to dare to use the phrase between adults and children, um, between adults and the child, that between mm-hmm. for Laplanche is very important. Frenzy acknowledges that there is an encounter um, between them. Um, I, I don't know if it's that there's, that there's, um, what you mean is that isn't what Laplanche is saying just a variation similar to Ferenzi's notion of the sort of child's language of tenderness and the adult's language of passion like isn't this that's what it felt like to me at first reading Uh i haven't done i haven't gone closer it felt like yeah a variation of that yeah i think i think that's true i think it is i think it is um a variation of that to some extent i think um uh we they are in some sense speaking different languages um i think the difference is that for forensi the result of that is, you know, it's, it's almost, it's, well, it's, it's takes a lot of work to make sure that that's not, um, that doesn't lead to something abusive um, and exploitative um, for, for the child because of these different uh, languages. Um, But I think that, um, I think that Laplanche is saying something, he's a little going into a little more depth about it and saying, yeah, that instinct is right. They are, they are speaking uh, in some sense to languages, but in another sense, they have, it's not, how do I put this? It's not straightforward. Um, like all the, uh, how do I, I want to explain this. Um, it's not so straightforward that the adult is just bringing passion that will somehow corrupt the innocence of the child. It's not, it's not really a corruption only. Um, for Laplanche, 
this is a really good thing as well. Like the fact that the innocent infant encounters the sexual adult is the reason that the infant grows into an adult with an unconscious. So it's very productive, this encounter. It can be pathological. It can be traumatic. But that's that should be hopefully the exception. That should be in certain circumstances. But for Laplanche, you need this encounter and this differential in it to form the sort of mechanisms of, of one's mental life. And so it's not, it's not really just a tragic thing. It's also, you know, a prerequisite for emotional and psychological development. Whereas I think there's a certain pathos to forensies that leans, Mm -hmm. which I think is very evocative. And I think, um, I think, we kind of feel quite intuitively. I think many of us like that makes a lot of sense. And I think it does, but, but he's also telling a, a, a sort of a very particular story about how that encounter goes. And Laplanche is saying much more generally, like, no, this, this is, this is good. This is what's going to give the child an unconscious because the child is going to encounter this thing. It has no idea what to do with. And in in needing to figure out what to do with it, but not knowing how it's going to start building tools by itself to figure out how to make sense of all this stuff, all this noise that is coming at it from the adult. And so it's going to be really successful, the child in many ways, the the, the baby and the child is going to translate a lot of this material and a lot of it will go into structuring an unconscious and to structuring consciousness and to and to symbolization and to fantasy and like that's all wonderful but it's never going to translate everything and it's there are always going to be things that are um incoherent to the adult and therefore really incoherent to the child or something that just because of the fit of the adult and the child it, it doesn't even have to be uh because there's something so deeply wrong with the adult it could just be it's a it's a certain match um that is conducive to this, but there will be things that are, that the infant simply can't figure out what to do with. They they can't make sense of. And that's what becomes um, the origin of this, of this more complicated uh, sexuality for Laplanche. Um, And so I think, I think in that one of the ways we we might think about the difference is, is is I think um, Laplanche maybe could be said to be generalizing those ideas a little bit more um, and um, and taking them out of um, the context of something that is necessarily um, um, problematic um, for the infant. Right. So then that I was I think you've answered a question, which is uh, Laplanche says that uh, sexuality develops in relation to self-preservation mm-hmm, mm-hmm. so that 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 would in a sense answer that this mm-hmm. is developmental the child has to go to work yeah and that is self-preservative there's also <laughs> i love this because of course i think about it from the analyst point of view um pretending that the adult who provides attachment can turn off his own unconscious yeah yeah, yeah we can't Right. Um, <laughs> oops. Sorry. Like, oops. Yeah. Sorry about that. Yeah. You know. <laughs> right. Exactly. Two two people in there. Um, yeah. And then and then the you I think the what you did use the word noise is a wonderful uh, ha- passage in the book of noise has only ever been noise. Yeah. 
Mm. Uh, and so then you write, it's no longer possible to speak in terms of what the adult did or didn't do because no amount of remembering could ever include the elements of communication, which were unconscious and all the more powerful for being so. Um, and I think that's what you were just saying about that, which yeah. will always be untranslatable. Yeah. Yeah. And I think yeah. that's where La Planche is, is, can be, can be understood to be offering an alternative to some of the more contemporary developments in psychoanalytic theory, which have swapped. Um, and this is what I mean about the sort of interpretation um, of trauma, who swapped um, sort of fantasy for reality. Like, no, no, that we need to really focus on what on what actually happened. And Laplanche is saying, sweetie, even if you did that, you you would not get you would not get to this because this is not something you remember. This is not something you know. This is just this is sort of what your unconscious is made out of. Um, this is the thing that is 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 part of it um, that you can't get at. Um, so. So let's, I, I, I'm glad you said that because I'm thinking about, yes, the, uh, I'm pulling a lot of thoughts here. Um, what it is meant by this sentence, interpretation is on the side of repression rather than on, of the repressed. Yeah. I mean, I think that um, the idea there is that in some sense, the act of interpreting, um, I, <laughs> The act of interpreting material psychic content is a way of um, of binding it and and making turning it into something that has language and that can be understood in language, um, and that takes it out of the realm of of um, the sort of nonverbal unconscious in the same way it's something that helps us gain um, traction helps us gain autonomy helps us feel like we have um, we have understood things better and so in that sense it's a it's a good thing and it's also a thing which is also a, a function which um, keeps things more or 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 um, you know it is conducive to a kind of a kind of uh, repression in that way um, because it's not getting acted on. It's getting turned into language um, in a certain sense. Yeah. Um, I want to move on to uh, the, the central claims of affect, but uh, something that, again, one of those things that I had never considered one way or the other, um, but this I thought was uh, Wonderful. Uh, the breast is not only an organ for feeding children, but a sexual organ, something utterly overlooked by Freud and has been since mm-hmm. Freud. I mean, that was mind blowing to me. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's really, um, it's really amazing. I agree. And I think you can hear in that sentence of Laplanche is that he is also sort of shocked. Like how has this been overlooked by Freud and everyone since Freud? Like what, how do we think this is actually working? Um, uh, we've sort of completely taken this scene of, of feeding out of its um, interpersonal and affective context um, um, and really failed 
to consider uh, what this actually might involve um, for everyone. Um, so I, th I think you can kind of hear, to me in, in that sentence, you can hear um, Laponche also being incredulous. <laughs> like, what? How? What? How is this overlooked? This is so obvious right in front of us. Um, it is so obvious once you, and yet I had never thought about it. But what's so interesting is I had begun to, you know, all of our institutes have our own literature and things. That we, and mm -hmm. I had begun about two years ago going, there is no sexuality. I went to a school, the modern psychoanalytic school, mm -hmm. right? So, mm -hmm. and I'm like, I was, I thought, oh, I'm going to write a paper called No Sex, Please, We're Moderns. Right, um, right. Yeah. But then I, um, Daniel Nafo was on the podcast uh -huh. saying, no, sexuality has dropped out of the discourse yeah. everywhere. Yeah. It's really fascinating. Yeah, um, it is. And and I think, you know, for some people, um, you know, attachment is the is the reason. Attachment theory is the bad guy. It's attachment theory that has displaced um, sexuality and all this focus on attachment um, and on the dyad and on seeing the mother and the adult as a sort of um, someone who provides attachment has really made it impossible to think these two things together um and so yeah i think that's that's a big it's a big topic it's sort of a big question i think in our field today where's that sexuality gone so let's talk about attachment and my question was well i'll read a little bit um harmonious scenes are a result of healthy parental functioning and the disharmony is a result of parental psychopathology or failure. That was in quotes. Mm -hmm. uh, although contemporary clinicians clearly attempt to avoid blaming the parent, the implication that environmental failure is the source of pathology is unavoidable. Are we implicating parents again? I mean, I think that the way that we are not, I think the way we're not doing that is by um, understanding and this is very, very important to Laplanche, that what the adult um, is transmitting, the thing we're talking about here is the adult's unconscious. This is what this is not conscious to the adult. So unless you were comfortable blaming adults, parents for their unconscious, which you know, like I don't I mean, I guess, but that doesn't that seems uh, like blaming them for breathing. I mean, in some sense, right. what Laplanche is saying is they, they simply can't do a thing without their own unconscious being part of it. Um, and no one can. And so they are going to convey uh, in every way that they relate to their children, um, feeding them, um, scolding them, praising them, hugging them, making them dinner, giving them baths, whatever caretaking is involved they're going to be conveying messages uh, from their unconscious. And the, the mostly what the stuff that we're interested in are those messages that are totally unconscious to the, to the adult. Um, they're right. not the, things that the adult knows. Right. It's a message that nobody knows. Exactly. It's a message nobody knows. And so I think this is really like very, very important to Laplanche. And I think this is also talk about refreshing like a way out of some of this more pathologizing discourse that is you know um my mother did x my you know she did y and she you know she said this she said that and it's, well that could all be true but it's really not even about the mother that um that we know it's about the mother who doesn't it's the parts of the mother that 
that she doesn't even know um, that are, that are, and, and, you know, that are unconscious to her. Um, So of course they're going to be even more of a problem for the child. And I say, of course, because this is where affect comes in. They're going to be more of a problem because by virtue of them being unconscious, the adult has not, has not symbolized them at all, has not worked on them, has not produced any, any, uh, any representation around them that makes them all the more powerful to the infant, um, into the child. The things that the parents are saying to you, those are things that are, have already sort of passed through some level of (laughs) verbal representation. So that's already quite mediated. That's not the stuff that Laplanche is is talking about. He's talking about the stuff that the parents that is not passed through that level of mediation and therefore is sort of like, you know, this like burning fire within them that they have no idea is there um, that is very raw and not mediated by um, by language. That's the stuff that is very powerful to the infant and to the child and that becomes a problem. Um, so I think I would hope that a sort of a nuanced appreciation of, of where this is coming from the adults would take us away from pathologizing uh, the parents. You know, I, I can't, it seems like. Well, it know. does because you have, yeah. you have a wonderful sentence, which is like the, it takes it to the logical absurdity. You say, listen, in this case, the only good adult is a psychologically neutral one, right. which of course is impossible. It, it, it's not, but, it's not, yeah. you know, but Laplanche says, listen, what I really love is, is this uh, unmediated fire yeah. uh, is, is um, it, it activates the child's creativity yeah. and their drive to translate. Um, so yeah. that's, that's where it becomes necessary. Um, what, what is the central claim of affect? You write a lot about affect um, uh, and uh, about attachment theory and, and regulation of affect. Yeah. Um, I think, you know, an affect has its own separate um um, sort of very vexed status in, in psychoanalysis for a lot of people. Um, it's one of the biggest problems in psychoanalysis is that it's missing a coherent um, theory of affect, um, uh, which I think it is. Um, but, um, you know, affect, first of all, has become obviously such a huge uh, topic in many fields, um, both in the humanities um, and maybe more um, sort of um, publicly in, in neurobiology and neuroscience. And um, I think, and, and in psychoanalysis, it, those that are working on affect regulation um, are, you know, take affect very seriously. But I think that if you, if you look at that, some of that stuff on affect regulation, especially um, you begin to appreciate the role that, um, that, affect plays in the development of psychic life and that the the need to regulate affect is sort of the primary preeminent goal of of the of the infant um and the adult uh and nothing else can happen if that's not if that's not happening this is sort of fundamental to everything else and the entire development of the brain you know depends upon how this goes so this is as as important as it gets and Laplanche says nothing about affect and affect was like a dirty word in France in those days. And they had a lot of fights with, with Lacan about affect. And, um, you know, it, it was a big problem in the seventies in France, but 
so we could speculate as to why as to why maybe Laplace does not talk about affect, but as as far as I understand it, affect is sort of the missing piece of the puzzle to understand that we need to understand what Laplace is saying because I don't. I, it's for me a way of making sense of what actually is getting um, is getting communicated um, between the uh, adult and and the child. There's there's when we talk about um, these messages. Um, and Laplace goes back and forth. His message is the best word. He's not really sure. It sounds a little Lacanian, but he uses it anyway. And then he uses some some other words. But what? But even let's stick with messages. But what do we mean by messages? Um, and I think it's not it's not always clear. And part of his anxiety about messages, which I which I agree with, is that we don't want to sound too verbal. We don't want to sound like it's something that the adult is saying because it's, it's the opposite. We're talking about precisely those things the adult is unaware of. And I think affect helps us with that because affect um, gives us a way of understanding that this is what we're, what we're talking about that's so important are precisely those communications from the adult that um, that are sort of happening all the time um, but that are not mediated by language necessarily. And so I think affect, considering that there is, you know, affect is is sort of how we relate and fundamentals of that gives us a, maybe a, a, a sort of a way of imagining um, what's going on here between these two people um, mm-hmm. and that the need to regulate affect is is what, brings the the infant and the and the adult um so close together um that you know the infant needs food and shelter we know all of that but what we've also learned in the past 20 years really is that the infant to survive and thrive um, mentally and biologically also needs to regulate its affect this is what the adult so much of what the adult does is that um and so we need to, to me, this is like the, one of the biggest things we need to integrate into like a model of psychoanalysis, like what the implications of that are for our theories. Um, well, you asked this, you asked this question in the book, you yeah. write, what would it mean to accept a comprehensive affect theory as a viable yeah. replacement for Freud's dual instinct mm-hmm. theory as the primary factor in psychological organization, psychological organization. So is that, is that big question in your next book? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I think so. I think that's what I'm sort of um, I'm working on now about affect theory, and um, and I've already gotten in some very heated arguments with some Freudians, and oh, but maybe I don't think they would call themselves Freudians, or they would just call themselves contemporary psychoanalysts. I'm not really sure, you know, um, but who are who are really insistent that, um, no, we already have an affect theory because we believe in repression. And I think, well, that's not going nearly far. I mean, it's nearly far enough. Um, and you know, this, this field of affect has just, just grown so much in 20 years. And we have, there are some very, um, interesting ideas out there about about how we're organized um affectively that i i would like to put into conversation with some of these concepts um so yeah that's that is what i'm working on 
next. Good. Year. You're right. Yeah, I was thinking, <laughs> you know, Laplanche, he doesn't talk about affect, but in terms of what the child needs, um, uh, in, in Drive and Instinct, where he does say, hey, wait a minute, the, mm. the baby cannot regulate its own temperature. Right. It needs, that, that's, you, it's not, it's not an instinct. You can't do it without yeah. the other. So yeah. Um, yeah. he didn't call that affect, but, yeah. but what is needed. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, I have seven more hours of questions, but we're at the end of hours. <laughs> uh, anything else for, for the people listening that you would like them to know uh, about the book? Or- um, I, I just, I hope that it, you know, I hope people feel encouraged to, to read uh, some of the Laplanche. And I, I think mostly, you know, we have an, had an opportunity to address it, but I know when I have um, spoken at conferences, this is something that always comes up. And I, I hope that people feel um, when they if they pick up something on the planche or reading something on the planche, they feel you know emboldened to sort of um, play with it too clinically and technically and see what this what the implications are of these ideas. You know, I think Laplanche uses the phrase um, so many times, putting to work. You know, put Freud to yes. work, and I. I really, I think that is a good, I think it's a good ethos. I think that's something that like gets us out of some of these more, um, what the defenses you and I were talking about at the beginning. I think putting Laplanche to work, I think putting psychoanalysis to work, I think, you know, we, we shouldn't be so worried about, about breaking anything, you know, um, like, let's, let's see what happens when we, when we use these ideas and when we apply these ideas, like what, what works, what doesn't like what, if there's so much Laplanche has not thought about, has not written about, is not included here. Like there's so, so we're, you know, so many places to go. And I, I just, I hope people feel like they can do that. Um, that was one of, I think more of the meta goals of, of the work. Um, yeah. Good. Well, thanks so much for uh, joining us today. It was really great to, to go through just a small part of the book, really. It's a terrific book. Um, we've been talking with Dr. Gail Ashter. Her latest book, Exigent Psychoanalysis, The Interventions of John LaPlanche. Dr. Ashter, thanks so much for joining today. Thank you. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Thank you. <laughs>